Pushkin. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Hi, I'm Jessica St. Clair, but you can call me Jess if you're nasty. And I'm Dame Casey Wilson. We are actors, comedians, and podcasters. But above all else, we are self-appointed masters of small talk. We have written a soon-to-be Nobel Prize-winning audiobook that will shortly change the course of history called The Art of Small Talk. Now, it's no secret that, that some people don't like small talk. Don't like it? Casey, everybody hates it. Except for us. We love to chit-chat bullshit, and that's why we wrote this book. Well, it's an audiobook. You're welcome. Who has the time to read? Not me. There will be research, but not too much, because what is this, a book report? We'll also hear from learned scholars like Malcolm Gladwell and from the most important people in the world, celebs like Amy Poehler, Tony Hale, June Diane Raphael, and Colin Quinn. You can grab your copy of The Art of Small Talk today at pushkin.fm slash smalltalk or wherever you get your audiobooks. Don't forget, you can listen with your Audible and Spotify memberships too. The Art of Small Talk. How to go shallow to go deep. Before we get started, let's talk about Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a subscription podcast program available on Apple Podcasts. Members will get access to exclusive bonus content, like my weekly bookmarks, where I talk about how I got a book agent and what I'm watching on TV that week. You'll get uninterrupted listening to many of your favorite podcasts, like Revisionist History, Cautionary Tales, and The Happiness Lab. Sign up for Pushkin Plus on the show page in Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm. When the New York Times magazine journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones started work on the 1619 Project in 2019, she realized it was a project she had actually been working towards all of her life. I don't do work for a claim. I don't do work because I'm trying to get somewhere in life. I do the work because it's the work that I'm called to do. In high school, she learned about the significance of the year 1619 to African-Americans, and it stuck with her. 1619 marked the beginning of slavery and America as a nation. And 400 years later, Nicole's on a mission to make sure everybody knows about this. I know uh, to whom I belong. 
I know what this work means to the people that I wrote it for. And I know that this work is right. I know that we are deserving of having our story told this way. America would not exist without us. It it just wouldn't. Nicole is right. We do deserve to have our story told and told with respect. That's why in 2021, she published The 1619 Project, a new origin story. It's an anthology of essays, fiction, and poetry by known Black authors, historians, poets, and artists. Welcome to Well-Read Black Girl, the literary kickback you didn't even know you needed. I'm your host, Glory Adam. And this week, I'm speaking with Nicole Hannah-Jones. We talk about how social justice showed up in her childhood, her writing process as a journalist, and why she can finally claim Howard University as her own. Hey, girl. How's it going? How are you feeling today? Hey, I'm doing great. And thank you for having me on. I'm looking forward to the discussion. So first question How did reading and writing show up in your childhood? Oh, man, I cannot remember a time where I was not both an avid reader and a writer. Some of my earliest memories are reading the newspaper with my dad. I was always surrounded by books. I was always going to the library. As soon as I got old enough to go by myself, I would just walk. I always had my nose in a book, whether we were in the car or I was sitting in the living room while my family was watching television. Um, I just always loved books, and I always used writing to express myself. I kept a journal from a young age, and then I, I would write poetry. I would write short stories that I had in my head. So I always feel like those two things go together. I love reading the acknowledgments of folks after you write a book. But one thing that stood out with your acknowledgments, there is a person Mr. Ray Dial, that you shout out and you give so much love. Can you tell me about him and how he influenced you? Absolutely. Mr. Ray Dial was my African-American studies teacher, and, and he was the only Black male teacher I ever had. And I took this one semester Black Studies elective, and I say, I mean, truly, that class uh, was transformative for me. Not only was Mr. Dial just an amazing teacher. He was funny. He was warm. He was teaching that class like it was college level because he had taught at the college level before he was asked to come to work in my school district. And he was brought there specifically because I was at a white high school where most of the Black kids were bussed in and there were just a Mm -hmm. lot of racial issues at the high school. And so they recruited him to to come help deal with that. And the way- Oh, wait a second. When you say racial (laughs) issues happen at your high school, like what exactly did you experience? So again, our high school was the white high school and we were bussed in as part of a voluntary school desegregation program. So nearly all of the Black kids in the high school, we were about 20 percent of the population were bussed in every day from the east side of town, which was where all the Black people live, into a high school that wasn't ours. And every day, students and teachers made us aware that the school wasn't ours. So there were racial fights. We had protests. I led uh, school walkouts. 
there was just a lot of racial tension and there was a, a pretty deep racial divide in the school. Uh, I was one of the only black kids in my higher academic courses. All of the other black kids were in what was considered the general ed and lower uh, academic courses. And there were just tensions in the cafeteria. There were tensions after school. It was a fraught time. And Mr. Dial was recruited. I'm not sure if he was recruited to help keep black students in line, but what they ended up getting was a, a teacher who was helping turn us into little mini revolutionaries. So my best girlfriend from high school, we founded an underground student newspaper in opposition to our white school newspaper. Oh, wait, you have to tell me, what, what was the name oh, of God, it? What was I, the name of the paper? You know what? Mr. Dow could tell you. He remembers every single thing. I cannot remember the name of it, but it was something Black. I know that. And he would sneak and let us into the teacher's lounge to print our newspaper. Mr. <laughs> yeah. And he would advise us, right? Okay, you're going to do this walkout. This is what you need to do so you don't get expelled. He was that kind of teacher where he believed in our right to assert ourselves. He understood our struggles and he was trying to guide us so that we could both protest what we thought was wrong about the school, but do it in a way that they weren't going to be able to rob us of our education. And he was just wow. amazing. He is the epitome of that educator that changes your life. And to this day, I still talk to Mr. Dow. When I did the book launch for the 1619 Project in my hometown, I called Mr. Dow and I was like, you have to be on stage with me. And so my final project in his class, he sent to me, he still had it. I graduated in 1994 and he still had my final project and he actually mailed it to me. And I was like, Mr. Dow, how, how could you even keep something that, that is that old and know where it is. But he said he just knew. He knew that. He, he was like, I didn't keep most kids' final project, but I knew I needed to keep yours. Saw in you. And 1619 was in there. And actually, I had written a little piece on Lerone Bennett in my final project. So it was kind of amazing. I had completely forgotten about it, but Mr. Dow had not. And to see that from you starting your own underground newspaper to like leading protests with the support of Mr. Dow, when you got bussed back to your house, what was Mr. Hannah saying? Like, what was your father thinking? Was he in support of this? What was your family's response? Were they in line with it or did they push for like more respectability politics? I definitely did not come from a household that engaged in respectability politics. My family is very, very working class. My dad loved to cuss, loved to drink, loved to throw parties. So we we were not uh, the type of household that engaged in that. Now, they wanted to make sure I was going to be successful. I was also raised in a household where all three of us girls were told we were going to go to college. They didn't care what we studied, but we were going to go to college. So what mm -hmm. my parents mainly wanted was to make sure I wasn't doing anything that was going to mess me up academically but they were right. in support. I mean, they weren't surprised. Mr. Dow gave me kind of the book knowledge that I needed, but my politics were already there. I grew up in a social justice household. My mom was taking us to protests. Even when I was a child, my mom was heavy into her labor union. We went to a social justice Catholic church. Like this was really just part of who I was as a child, but this is the danger of an education because I didn't have the, the knowledge of Black political struggle, of Black history. And once I, I started putting those two things together, I became an incorrigible student, let me say that. <laughs> <laughs> what were the one or two books that you read that let you know, like, yes, was it Baldwin? Was it Morrison? Do you have some authors that come to mind immediately? 
This is going to be a very revealing answer because I talked to ta a lot about this. I didn't read really any Black literature growing up. I was being exposed to Black historians, African origins of civilization, those type of books, but I wasn't reading literature. I didn't read Baldwin until I was in my 30s. I didn't read Toni Morrison until I was in my 20s. And I think you can actually see that in my writing, right? I, I'm not a, a super literary writer because I didn't grow up with that. The only Black literature I really read when I was in high school was Langston Hughes. And that's because at my high school, we had one poem by Langston Hughes, A Dream Deferred. And then I decided to do my senior AP project on Langston Hughes. And I went to the library and checked out all of his short stories, all of his poetry. And then when I got to college, I took a class on the Harlem Renaissance. And that's where I was for the first time exposed to Zora Neale Hurston. I took an entire class on Richard Wright. So that was the first time I actually had any exposure to Black literature because I didn't come from a literary household. I talk about this in the preface for the book. My mom loved like Daniel Steele romance novels and my dad yeah. loved Westerns. I'm so glad you brought up Langston Hughes because I was surprised by American Heartbreak 1619. So I have read so much Langston Hughes and it's like just one of the core foundational poets that you read as a Black yes. artist, as a Black person, you know Langston Hughes. And everyone refers to Dream Deferred, but I had never read American Heartbreak. So did you make that correlation early? Is that something you knew from your studies as a child or it was later on that you're like, oh my God, he was writing about the same thing? This was after the 1619 Project originally published. So no, I, and I've read, I mean, I've probably read more Langston Hughes than your average person. I literally read all of his short stories, everything. By the way, short stories are amazing. One of my favorite books is The Ways of White Folks, um, which I actually have with me. I carry it with me sometimes because I just love rereading the short stories. But after the 1619 Project published, someone on Twitter, I think it's the Beinecke Library, I think they might have his papers, shared the poem on Twitter and then someone tagged me in it. And I was like, oh my God, my favorite poet was writing about 1619. And then I realized, you know, the more I've done this project, like Dr. King was talking about 1619 all of the time, but never yes. in any of the speeches that, that I ever read or that they talked about. And you realize that Within certain circles, 1619, it always stood in as a starting point, as this lineage, but it had been just largely erased from kind of the common memory. Right. And, th and that that's the key word, the common memory. So now that I've read this book and we've have been having conversations and it's part of the public consciousness, I see it yes. all the time. And I don't think I had any awareness previously. And, and it's especially like being a student at Howard. And I feel like I'm a well-rounded Black person. Like I do all these things. I'm like, how did we miss this? Because we weren't taught. I want to know, when did you first become aware of Ida B. Wells? Because you were talking about like history and all these things you were reading. Was she part of what you were reading with Mr. Dial in your household? Was that much later too? So I have racked my brain about this and I feel like I can't remember when I didn't know her name. I mean, I have these pictures in my head of Black History Month and our teachers would put up like five great Black historical figures and they looked like, you know, those little Victorian brooches. Mm -hmm. It would be like a picture like that up on the wall. And the Ida B. Wells was one of those, along with Frederick Douglass, George Washington Carver, and Harriet Tubman. And they said she was a journalist, but didn't say what type of journalism she was doing, what was the subject right. of her journalism. So I knew her name, but I really didn't know anything else about her, except that she was an important historical figure. And then when I was at Notre Dame, I was an African-American studies major, 
And I was very nerdy. I still am. And so I would go through the, the stacks in the bookstore and see what teachers were assigning in classes that I wasn't able to take. And then I would buy those books. And one of the books I saw was the autobiography that Ida B. Wells wrote. And I was like, hmm, I don't really know who she is. Like, I, I know her name, but I don't really know who she is. And so I started flipping through it. And I was like, oh, my God, this woman was no joke. And so I bought the autobiography. And after I read that, I was just like, this is my spiritual godmother, right? This is the model of a Black woman coming fully into her power and using her voice for the benefit of her people and being fearless and courageous. So you had this experience with Mr. Dial. You were just starting to decide what you wanted to be when you grew up. When did you decide to actually become a journalist? So, you know, I I grew up in Waterloo, Iowa, and I always say there aren't a lot of Black people in Iowa, but there's still enough to segregate us. So that's why we were part of a busing program, and we faced a lot of discrimination in the school and a lot of stereotypes about the Black side of town being dangerous, about the students who were coming from the Black side of town being dangerous, about us not being as smart. And and to be clear, I said... I did read newspapers my whole life. I subscribed mm-hmm. to Time Magazine starting in the seventh grade. I got my first letter to the editor published when I was 11 years old about Jesse Jackson oh, wait, and the primary. I, I told you I was nerdy. Um, <laughs> it, you know, I was first in the nation primary, and this was 1988, and Jesse Jackson was running to become president. And he didn't do very well in the primary. And this tells you how nerdy I am because I'm 11 years old and I'm paying attention to the presidential primary. And I felt he didn't do well because he was black, at least partly. And so I wrote a letter to the editor and I I just said, I felt like he was a good candidate and we should have given him a better chance. And that one day we were going to have a black president, whether we liked it or not. Eleven. Eleven. Obama right? out there or Tyrone. Somebody it's going to happen. Gonna and every day after I sent the letter in, I would rush home from school, look in the newspaper to see how they published it. And one day they they did. And I just remember feeling like, oh, I can see something I don't like and I can write about it. And I might not change people's minds, but I can force people to at least grapple and acknowledge how I feel about it. So the idea that I might be a journalist was there for a pretty long time. And then I only applied to one college. Uh, I only applied to Notre Dame because I believed I needed to go to a prestigious college because I felt as a Black girl, I had to have a certain credential to try to mitigate racism. And I had to go close to home because my family was working class. They weren't going to be able to fly me home. If I wanted to come home, I had to be within driving distance. And um, Notre Dame did not offer journalism. So mm-hmm. I studied my first love. My first love really is history. I studied history and African-American studies and considered maybe getting my PhD in history and being a historian. Mm-hmm. But I ultimately decided that journalism could wed the best of both of those things. I could be writing about contemporary society. I could write about inequality today and and hopefully try to work in a way to advance our people, but I could use history in my writing. And that's when I decided for sure that I wanted to become a journalist. After the break, Nicole and I dig deeper into her process of creating the 1619 Project, her writing practices, and how she ended up at my alma mater, Howard University. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance... Check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. 
And right from the start, they turned to Chase for business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Hi, I'm Jessica St. Clair, but you can call me Jess if you're nasty. And I'm Dame Casey Wilson. We are actors, comedians, and podcasters. But above all else, we are self-appointed masters of small talk. We have written a soon-to-be Nobel Prize-winning audiobook that will shortly change the course of history called The Art of Small Talk. Now, it's no secret that, that some people don't like small talk. Don't like it? Casey, everybody hates it. Except for us. We love to chit-chat bullshit, and that's why we wrote this book. Well, it's an audiobook. You're welcome. Who has the time to read? Not me. There will be research, but not too much, because what is this, a book report? We'll also hear from learned scholars like Malcolm Gladwell and from the most important people in the world, celebs like Amy Poehler, Tony Hale, June Diane Raphael, and Colin Quinn. You can grab your copy of The Art of Small Talk today at pushkin.fm slash smalltalk or wherever you get your audiobooks. Don't forget, you can listen with your Audible and Spotify memberships too. The Art of Small Talk. How to go shallow to go deep. I'm Glory Adam, and you're listening to Well-Read Black Girl. I'm joined today by Nicole Hannah-Jones, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and the author of The 1619 Project. Can we get in your mind a little bit in just the process of when you're crafting a story, walk me through the research process of deciding that this was the book to write and how you even approach the editors at the New York Times. It's very clear that they've been supportive of you from the beginning. There is so much what feels just like a collective care when it comes to publishing this work and making sure that you're at the forefront and you're able to really curate it the way mm-hmm. you want. Can you talk about the contributors, even the the titles of each chapter? How did this all come together? Yeah, I feel like in some ways I've been working towards the 1619 Project my entire career. I became a journalist because I wanted to write about Black people and I wanted to write about racial inequality, but I wanted to do investigative reporting around racial inequality because I've always felt that so much reporting around race is superficial that it's really just listing everything that Black people suffer from as if No one or no thing is causing that suffering. And as someone who studies history and loves history, I know that history for me explained the architecture of inequality. And so in journalism, you could do the same thing. And almost everything that I've approached, as you said, most of my career, it was always, how can I help people understand 
uh, this modern phenomenon by helping them understand the history and the intentional uh, way that this inequality was built. How can I tell a narrative that people actually care about, right? So it was always these sorts of things. And the way that I approach the 1619 Project is the way I approach most things. Having a history degree, I do an extensive amount of historical research on anything that I'm working on. I read often multiple books. I do original archival research depending on what it is that I'm writing. I talk to historians. I read sociology. I mean, I basically do a literature review. I like to see Mm -hmm. everything that's been written along the subject and try to figure out what can I offer that will be surprising. As you know, when it comes to race, everyone thinks they know, but they don't really know. Right. Right. And so I think of like, what are all the arguments I hear? What are the objections? What are the things that people think that they understand, but they really don't? And then how can I challenge that with the writing? But I did know that who was writing it would be the ultimate testimony um, Mm -hmm. to the, the resilience of our people and the resilience of our ancestors, that the descendants had to be the primary shaper of this kind of collective reckoning with our country. It's so beautiful to encounter this work because the list of scholars and writers, you know, you have everyone from Tracy K. Smith in here to Lynn Nottage to Dorothy Roberts to Barry Jenkins. I mean, you have Claudia Rankin. It's just so phenomenal. And each chapter, it's simply one word. So you have democracy, race, sugar, progress, like Every single chapter literally shows how the legacy of slavery is in everything we do. It's in the fabric of our constitution. And and this idea of a functioning democracy, that is what you are illustrating in this book. How did you know who to pick? Like from the top, like I got to have this person. Was it a hard process to narrow it down to the contributors? Yeah. So I fought really hard for all of the titles to be one word because to me, the simplicity of just reading the uh, table of contents and being like, dang, traffic, healthcare, medicine, capitalism, democracy, right? Just that single word uh, really speaks to how foundational the institution of slavery was, that it has touched all of these institutions. And um, mostly for the contributors, I knew who I wanted, particularly for the essays. When I first pitched the project, one of the first things I did was I convened this massive brainstorming session with scholars whose work had informed mine. So economists, historians, sociologists, art historians, and many of them ended up writing for it. And then it was just a matter of what is the subject that we feel needs to be covered and who do we think is the best person to write that? And so, you know, Martha Jones on citizenship, to me, the most obvious choice in the world. Uh, Taya Miles, who's an Afro-Indigenous scholar at Harvard to write the, the story on the dispossession of Native land. Khalil Muhammad actually pitched the idea of sugar at mm. our initial brainstorm. That's not what scholarship he's known for, but it, it was a brilliant essay. So, so it really was truly collaborative in that way. And then as far as the literary timeline, which is the short fiction and poetry, that really was the idea of Jake Silverstein, the editor-in-chief. We, we had been having a discussion about how much of our history is it told through Black people because we weren't able to read and write as we were experiencing so much of this. And what if we had some of the greatest American writers reimagine these moments? And we just did a massive Excel spreadsheet and we just listed every Black writer that we would love to see 
participate. And some are expected, you know, Rita Dove, Pulitzer Prize winner, and others are not. Terry McMillan, who you wouldn't think about being in this type of project, but I'm like, I love Terry McMillan as a writer, right? And who- Y'all can't see my expression. I I saw that. (laughs) I was like, she got Terry McMillan up in here. Terry McMillan is like the greatest. I feel like she's underappreciated. Like she's the, the best at everything. Like- Exactly. She was so, you know, excited and honored because this isn't something people would typically think of her as. You know, Barry Jenkins, he's a director and a screenwriter. But the first time I read his poem, it made me cry. It's haunting and beautiful. Like I said, what greater testament to what our ancestors bore than to be able to have some of the greatest writers and historians in America all in one volume and almost all of them are Black. Like to me, this is the testimony. I mean, it takes your breath away, just the the magnitude of this project. It just has such like a tenderness to it. And not only are you thinking about like our past, but you are reimagining our future too. There's a poem on brevity by Camille Dungy. The last stanza of the poem, it says, revision is a struggle towards truth. In my book, I won't keep the end. For such terrible brevity, dear black girls, sweet babies, there's been no end. And when I read this, I w- I thought of you so much because of this one line, revision is a struggle toward truth. And 1619 is such a beautiful revision. And the work that you're doing is always moving us closer towards the truth. And even if people try to discredit it, try to push it back for whatever reason, you are telling the truth and not being afraid of what might come because people don't want to hear the truth. So my question to you is like when that comes, that discredit, those those vicious things that happen to you online and off where people, they don't want you or us to win. How do you handle that? How do you take care of yourself? And who are the people that keep you, that hold you while you do this work? You know, thank you. And and thank you for recognizing how important this work was to me and to all of us that we did take a lot of care. I didn't know if anyone would read this or what this would become, but that our ancestors and our people deserve to have this told in a dignified, proper way that was both unflinching, but not further uh, trying to rob us of our humanity. And I think because this meant so much to all of us, I mean, I expected the attacks. Clearly, you don't produce a project like this that makes the arguments that we make in the New York Times, which people feel they have a certain ownership over and that someone like me shouldn't even be able to bring something like this forth from the New York Times. We were going to get scrutiny and critique and attacks. I I knew all of that, but I also take them really personally because of the care that we did take and that our people don't deserve, you know, they're attacking me, but they're really attacking our history. They're really attacking our contributions and they're attacking us telling the truth about who we are as a people and as a country. With that said, though, I just, you know, I I say this again and again, I really am built for this because I know uh, to whom I belong. I know what this work means to the people that I wrote it for. And I know that this work is right. I know that we are deserving of having our story told this way. America would not exist without us. It, it just right. wouldn't. And I know the decades of scholarship 
much of it by Black scholars who were determined to push back on this narrative that wrote us out in the margins. All of that means that I just have confidence and surety about the work that I'm doing. I don't do work for acclaim. I don't do work because I'm trying to get somewhere in life. I do the work because it's the work that I'm called to do. You sometimes get caught up in the criticism and it plays an outsized kind of role in your psyche. Mm-hmm. But when I go out and, you know, the black Delta flight attendant or the black doorman or or my my driver when I was going to an event who I, I had to mail him a book because he just couldn't believe he was driving me. Like oh. regular black people who know and value this work, then what can anyone say to me? So I just feel honored. And this is where studying people like Ida B. Wells, right? Studying the way that people who, particularly Black women, who tried to tell the truth. I mean, Toni Morrison, right? They attacked her Nobel Prize and said that her getting it delegitimized the Nobel Prize the same way that they said that about me and my Pulitzer. So studying history means that we have the backbone and the strength to know what to expect. And that if our ancestors could bear it without the resources we have, without the institutional support, I can certainly bear it. So I'm great. Now I am drinking wine in the middle of the day, so that might tell you something. But (laughs) overall, I'm just proud Like you know, if people were not the right type of people, were not attacking this work, this work would have failed because it would have told a comfortable and comforting narrative. And this work should be troubling to the people who have held power in this country. And it is. So I'm proud of that. We are proud of you. And it's given us the vocabulary. There's so many things that I wanted to say that maybe that I felt timid about, or maybe I was like, I don't know. But the moment I can cite your book, I can reference the things, I can go down a rabbit hole of knowledge and feel empowered and know that like, this is history. These are facts. This is not something you can dispute with me because it lives in a real space and it's now part of our collective consciousness. What other things like motivate and inspire you from a creative standpoint? So... I I hope all the writers who are listening to this will be calmed by this because um, whenever I read about writers whom I admire their writing process and what a mess it is, then I feel calm because I'm like, my writing process is a complete mess. It's just, it's grueling and I I have to write in the mornings. My mind only functions super well in the morning, so I have to be... Like how um, early though? We talking about 5 a.m., 4 a.m., No, um, usually like... Seven or so, like not super early. I got to get up, get my coffee. I am a morning person. I do wake up early. The house needs to be empty. I need to write in silence. I'm not one of those people who can write in a coffee shop or write anywhere. Like I'm a bit of a, a diva when it comes to writing. Everything has to be kind of particular. I have a writing space in my basement. It's like a bomb shelter. It's in the basement. There's no windows. There's nothing. No windows? No, it's just <laughs> because I just have to be alone. Um mm-hmm. Writing is agonizing for me. I mean, there's probably been four times where I just sat down and just everything flowed and I was like, oh, this is going to be good. Partly because I do an overwhelming amount of research. So Mm -hmm. by the time I write, I just know way too much. I have way too many sources and it's hard to figure out how to start and and how much to leave out. So I, I read this somewhere when I was reading about other writers' writing process and I don't remember who it was, but they said, you have to free yourself to write shitty first drafts. And I was like, that is so liberating. And so I, I wrote it on a piece of paper and I like have it in my writing space. And I'm like, just get it out. Just get it out. Because otherwise it's like I'm agonizing over every single word. And, and you, you, you 
been sitting at the keyboard for two hours and you have like one paragraph. <laughs> right. Um, 500 words instead of like right. a 5,000 exactly. page essay. So what typically happens is I research until I can't anymore. And part mm-hmm. of it is I just never feel like I know enough. And part of it is just procrastination where I'm like, as long as I'm researching, I don't have to write. And then when I write, I just sit down and write the whole damn thing. So my husband would tell you, I work 14, 15 hours just sitting at the desk drinking seltzer and don't come down and talk to me. Don't say anything to me. There'll be books scattered everywhere, notebooks scattered everywhere. And I'll just write that thing obsessively until I have a draft out. That's typically how I do it. So like the democracy essay, the first version of it, probably revised 12 times. Mm. And then when I expanded the essay... That was just as long of a revision process, and it's just a constant revising. I never lack for motivation. Like I get to write when I want to write and what I want to write. And so whenever I'm writing, it's because I'm getting to write something I feel is important. And doing it to yourself. (laughs) Yeah. Writing is like therapy. Like I have this like tension bottle up about something that I'm seeing or something that I think needs to be addressed. And then I can put it on the page and it's like a release for me once I've gotten it down. There's so much abundance in the project. Each essay, each contribution, you can go a million different directions. And you brought up the children's book. Can you talk a little bit about the children's book you co-wrote with Renee Watson, Born on the Water? So I am so proud of Born on the Water and uh, my collaborators, Renee Watson, who's just an amazing uh, children's book author, and then Nicholas Smith, who uh, is the illustrator. It's really one of the most important things that I've done. It came out of two things. When the original project came out, I kept hearing from so many parents, especially Black parents, who said, I learned so much reading the project, but I don't want my child to have to wait until they're grown um, to have an understanding of our legacy and our lineage. And I really wish that there was something for kids. You know, the magazine was turned into curriculum, but it was a high school curriculum. Mm -hmm. So parents were asking for it. And then, of course, I was thinking a lot about my experience as a child and what it would have meant to me as a Black girl to have an origin story as opposed to feeling like we didn't have one and every other group did. So that's really where the idea came from. And I knew I wanted to write it, but I'd never written a children's book before. And, and I don't have you know, the hubris to think that just because you're good at writing in one way, you'll be great at writing in another. So I asked you know, to be paired with a veteran children's book writer, but I said, I actually want to like co-write it. Like I don't want uh, it to be like my name, but she actually wrote it. So uh, they introduced me to Renee and I had read some of her children's book, but then I read everything that she wrote and we met and just hit it off. And so we really co-wrote it. Like every other stanza is either her or me. And we were talking the other day and we're like, sometimes we can't even tell who wrote what. Um, (laughs) Some of them I can tell. I'm like, yeah, that's definitely what I wrote. But others, like we had such a synergy and connection and she was so... Uh, gracious to be paired with someone who doesn't write children's book, but to see the response of children and their parents to this book and what it has meant to them has just been so great, especially for Black descendants of American slavery. Because even my daughter, when she was in elementary school, was a lot of Black kids, but most of the Black kids were coming from the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. So when they would do Flag Day, all those kids were like proud with their flag from Trinidad or their flag from the DR. And my child was like, what's my flag? And so for her Black American children to be able to claim their lineage was just really important to me. And it's been a beautiful thing in the world. 
I have to talk about Howard because, hello, you are now a professor at Howard University. Tell us how that came to be and how (laughs) do you feel now that you are part, officially part of the Mecca? Because we grandfathered you in a long time ago. There's always been the love, but now you're there. What does it feel like? What is it like working with the students? Tell me all of it. Listen, I mean, you you already know, Glory, that I, I have long coveted uh, people who actually could make a claim to the Mecca. I didn't know really about HBCUs when I was in high school. My husband was the first Black person I ever met whose grandparents had a college degree. I didn't even know that was possible, which makes me feel like so naive. But so I always wished I had gone to an HBCU and particularly Howard just because of the legacy and particularly the legacy of Black writers. Um, and Tanahasi used to be like, you should come to homecoming. And I always be like, I can't come. It'll kill me because I'm just an imposter. Like, I can't do it. I wasn't actually going to come to Howard because I feel like Howard does get, even though I I, I desperately wanted don't, to be don't, part don't, of the don't Howard say, don't, tell, don't talk about, no, no, you were going to come. No, don't, but don't I feel say. like Howard gets, gets, you know, for HBCUs, it gets a lot of the resources. Yes, so I was trying does, to yeah. think like, how could I lend my resources best? Uh, but then I talked to Tanahazi and he was like, you know, if you come, I'll come. And I was like, okay, I can't, I can't, I there can't turn go, that down. That it's power. a wrap. Let me just say, it's been an absolute dream. The faculty is just amazing and brilliant and love their people and the students. They didn't choose Howard as their second pick, right? They were like, this is the only school I wanted to go to. And my students are just so confident and passionate and smart. It's just been amazing. And now I can claim Howard finally. I, I, it, you can claim it. You know, okay. The other day I was on campus and they played Lift Every Voice and Sing from the Bell Tower. And I was like, I am home and it's not too late. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Hi, I'm Jessica St. Clair, but you can call me Jess if you're nasty. And I'm Dame Casey Wilson. We are actors, comedians, and podcasters. 
But above all else, we are self-appointed masters of small talk. We have written a soon-to-be Nobel Prize-winning audiobook that will shortly change the course of history called The Art of Small Talk. Now, it's no secret that, that some people don't like small talk. Don't like it, Casey. Everybody hates it. Except for us. We love to chit-chat bullshit, and that's why we wrote this book. Well, it's an audiobook. You're welcome. Who has the time to read? Not me. There will be research, but not too much, because what is this, a book report? We'll also hear from learned scholars like Malcolm Gladwell and from the most important people in the world, celebs like Amy Poehler, Tony Hale, June Diane Raphael, and Colin Quinn. You can grab your copy of The Art of Small Talk today at pushkin.fm slash smalltalk or wherever you get your audiobooks. Don't forget, you can listen with your Audible and Spotify memberships too. The Art of Small Talk. How to go shallow to go deep. It's time for Rapid Fire. So I'm just going to say a thing I'm gonna say a sentence and you just say like the first thing that comes to mind like it doesn't have to be like a full I know it's fun though favorite TV show at the moment Snowfall ooh that's a good one okay favorite pair of Jordans my favorite number is Jordan 11 so now I'm really into Jordan 1's and I have these black white and red newsprint Jordans that just you know oh my gosh they should they need to make a 1619 Jordan (laughs) okay they should Okay, because you're a famous redhead, we know your look. What are your go-to curly hair products? Oh, God. Oh, I use so much (laughs) products. Um, I use uh, Jane Carter Solution. I use this As I Am uh, Black Curl Activator. I use Curls. Curls actually has a great pick and comb that I use, and and we'll just go with that for now. Favorite movie of all time? Malcolm X. All right. How many tattoos do you have, and what are they? Mm. So I have a feather on my foot, which is a peacock feather because my nickname back home is Bird, and I got it in honor of my father when he died. I have a butterfly on my arm, which stands for renewal. Uh, I have Africa with a peace sign on my wrist. I have a Waterloo tattooed on my right wrist, which is my bitch stay humble tattoo. Just always remind myself I came from the dirt and to the dirt I can be returned. So be humble. And then I have a, a, a tattoo of a hibiscus and a... um. And a butterfly, and my, my baby sister passed away some years ago, and she had that tattoo on her arm, so I got that in honor of her. Oh, I love that. I only have one tattoo, but I've been thinking about getting more. I have a Basquiat crown that my brother and I did together. He has, like, a huge one on his arm. Oh, nice. And I, have, I, have, I, I got scared. I got scared, so I got a small <laughs> Right, you're like, let me wrist. test this out first. Yeah. Right. I will say with the foot tattoo, I really wanted them to quit, but I was like, I can't have a half-done tattoo because that was, uh, outside of childbirth, that was the most painful thing I ever went through. Oh, yikes. Yeah, that did hurt. (laughs) If you just compared it to having a baby, that definitely did hurt. I love having these discussions that highlight the incredible journeys that Black authors take to tell our story. Revision is a struggle toward truth. I'm honored to be fighting in a world with Nicole Hannah-Jones. Reading The 1619 Project as a Black woman, I learned about my place in society and the power of acknowledging our collective history. This book made me feel proud. Proud to be part of a generation of readers that values the contributions of our ancestors. Nicole's work reaffirms what I believe is possible when we recognize our self-worth as Black people. The 1619 Project, A New Origin Story is out now. 
In our next episode, I'll be joined by poet and author Elizabeth Acevedo to discuss her path to poetry and how music led the way. Well Read Black Girl is a production of Pushkin Industries. It is written and hosted by me, Glory Edom, and produced by Cher Vincent and Brittany Brown. Our associate editor is Keisha Williams. Our engineer is Amanda K. Wang. And our showrunner is Sasha Mathias. Our executive producers are Mia Lobel and Leetal Molad. At Pushkin, thanks to Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Julia Barton, Jen Guerra, John Schnars, and Jacob Weisberg. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at WellReadBlackGirl. You can find Pushkin on all social media platforms at Pushkin Pods. And you can sign up for our newsletter at pushkin.fm. If you have a question, a recommendation, or you just want to say hi, email us at wrbg at pushkin.fm. If you love this show and others from Pushkin Industries, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And if you're already a subscriber, make sure to check out my exclusive bookmark series. You'll hear extended interviews with book club members, bookstore owners, and more. And you get to hear what's on my mind, what's on my radar, and of course, what's on my reading list each week. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Hi, I'm Jessica St. Clair, but you can call me Jess if you're nasty. And I'm Dame Casey Wilson. We are actors, comedians, and podcasters. But above all else, we are self-appointed masters of small talk. We have written a soon-to-be Nobel Prize-winning audiobook that will shortly change the course of history called The Art of Small Talk. Now, it's no secret that, that some people don't like small talk. Don't like it. Casey, everybody hates it. Except for us. We love to chit-chat bullshit, and that's why we wrote this book. Well, it's an audiobook. You're welcome. Who has the time to read? Not me. There will be research, but not too much, because what is this, a book report? We'll also hear from learned scholars like Malcolm Gladwell and from the most important people in the world, celebs like Amy Poehler, Tony Hale, June Diane Raphael, and Colin Quinn. You can grab your copy of The Art of Small Talk today at pushkin.fm slash smalltalk or wherever you get your audiobooks. Don't forget, you can listen with your Audible and Spotify memberships too. The Art of Small Talk. How to go shallow to go deep.